Last week, we looked at the final verse of 1 John, and this message is not officially in our series on John. We did end it last week. But there was such a response, and my heart was so burdened with my own struggles, sometimes with idols, um, that I have felt compelled for us to look deeper at this issue, the grave issue, the incredibly serious issue of idolatry. We recognized last week that the greatest sin of the Old Testament, the greatest punishments of sin in the Old Testament, the greatest warnings concerning sin in the Old Testament were all around idolatry. That human beings are made for worship, and we will worship. The question is, what are we worshiping? What are we living for? What has the highest values to us? Maybe not just in the aggregate of our life, all over in the big picture, but maybe also in the moment by moment. In fact, in Thessalonians, we're told, pray without ceasing. We are told to continually walk and live our days in worship of God. But the human heart is not only prone to worship, it's also prone to wander. We can wander away from the things that are true. We can wander away from the things that we say we hold most dear. In fact, we see that in Romans chapter 7. If you've ever studied Romans 7, you know that the Apostle Paul is being very honest where he is describing the agony of the human heart that is called to honor God and the desire to honor God, but yet our flesh that wars against that even still. And so this morning, I believe it's important for us to look at a passage of Scripture that comes from the Old Testament um, that can help us deal well with this issue of dealing decisively with our idols. Um, This morning, I'm going to throw you a little curveball right now, and um, we're going to start on the second side. So we're not going to start with the Isaiah 46 passage. Um, The way I wanted to lay it out where that whole passage would be together didn't allow me to do it that way. So we're going to begin with there are three types of people. Now, what I'm about to explain, everybody just look right up here for just a minute. Many of you have in some way, shape, or form kind of been confused about how the Old Testament links with the New Testament and how Old Testament believers were saved versus New Testament believers were saved. Some of you have just kind of heard things about the Ten Commandments and the law that was given through Moses And that whole process with that, and you, as you hear that story and as you see that, well, the goal must have been to keep the Ten Commandments. And then if you kept the Ten Commandments, or at least did so reasonably well, then perhaps you were a faithful um, Israelite and a faithful person of God, and so therefore you would be saved. But let me just make clear to you that nothing could be further from the truth. If anybody was saved in the Old Testament era, it was through the same cross of Jesus Christ that we are saved by in the New Testament era. You see, it has always been God's plan to send the Messiah to pay for sins. The Old Testament believers were looking forward to a promised Messiah. 
And we as New Testament believers look back on the Messiah who God had sent, who came, and who died for our sins. And so as we look at this and as we look at Israel's struggle in the Old Testament, we see that they had similar struggles as we do. And they were called to look to the same Messiah that we were called to look to, but just in a different order. And so this morning, I want us to kind of look here at these three types of people that exist in the world. Number one, there are those who have no interest in God and do not pretend to have interest in God. For the sake of space, I didn't finish that, but they don't pretend to. They're not interested in God, and they have no um, pretense of that. And these people would exist in the Old Testament, and these people would exist in this era, in the New Testament era. In Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is what? There is no God. And we see that, that idea throughout the Psalms. We see that idea throughout the history of humanity. That there are people who have no interest in God. And when we will look in a few minutes at Isaiah 46, we're going to be looking at the Babylonians and the Persians. And when the Bible talks about the wicked in that sense, these people who worship other gods, they don't pretend to be interested in the God of creation. They're interested in other gods. But there's a second group of people. And the second group of people are those who pretend to have interest in Yahweh God but actually do not. They pretend to have interest in God, but they do not. And these would be people that would have been named in the nation of Israel. These would have been some of the Hebrews, some of the people that were there as part of God's chosen people as as a nation. But yet their hearts, even though they would pretend to be religious, would not. So fill this in. They appear religious. Fill that in. They appear religious. And they like the amenities of God, but not his holiness. And they ultimately worship something other than God. They worship perhaps self or the creation or something along those lines. Now, that would not only be in the Old Testament, but that would also be in the New Testament. You see, in Isaiah 29 and verse 13, Ezekiel 33, the picture is that these people confess. God says through the prophet Isaiah, you confess me with your lips, but you deny me with your life. Mark chapter 7, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says the same things, that there would be many who would confess him with their lips but deny him with their life. And in this present day and time, there are people who go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they they really are professing Christ and professing to be a Christian, but yet really are not interested in pursuing the holiness and the goodness of God and and a, re- a life with him. G- the Christianity has become an add-on to them. It's, it's a bit of their culture more than it's really their life in their heart. The Apostle John was writing First John to root that out. Um, we see that subject come up over and over again in the Scriptures. And I, I just want to be very careful to say to us as a church family 
that just because we hear those warnings, you, you don't have to think, well, then, then there's no way for me to be saved because I know sometimes I, I struggle with sin and sometimes I struggle with various, various um, surrender to Christ. But let me just say that God has called us to live on an upward path with him. And we can know that. We can be in that. You see, the first two groups are, are those that we would call the wicked. Fill that in, the wicked. These are those who would say, either I don't have any interest in God or I act like I do have interest in God, but I really don't. And this is the wicked. This can be the Babylonians or the Israelites who would not turn to God. And this can be the pagan down on Miami Beach getting drunk, doing drugs, and doing everything else that has no interest in God or the guy walking down the street right here in front of the church. Or it can be the person here that says, oh yeah, I love God, but has never turned to Christ and really allowed Christ to be his Lord and Savior turning in faith to him. But then there's a third group of people. There are those who are sinners, yet have repented and come to true faith in God's salvation. There are those who are sinners, circle the word sinners, yet have repented and come to true faith in God's salvation. Now, Romans chapter 1 begins to lay this out. Galatians 2 lays this out. Galatians 3 lays this out. James 2 talks about this. Romans 4 deals with this. The picture is that our salvation is not based upon our works and any inherent good in us. Our salvation is solely dependent upon Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice for our sin. This is God in the flesh, he himself coming to pay for our sins. And this is what the Bible calls the righteous. These are the righteous. Now, as we look at those who have come to that, I, I want us to see, notice these that are here, the outline, excuse me, the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, they are saved by faith in the Messiah's sacrifice. They are justified, or that means they are made righteous through faith, not through themselves. Justified means to be made righteous. Their lives reflect God's salvation, and that is the idea of being on the upward path of sanctification. Doesn't mean that they never sin, but it does mean that when you look at them, their life is different not only from the world, but their life is different than it was before. Is your life different than it was before? Was there a point of conversion for you and a, a turning to Christ and following after him? Is there a continued growth in that? Notice this. They are growing in love for and obedience to God. They're growing in love for and obedience to God. Now, I remember as a young man, I remember struggling with this because I had to be honest that I had a great struggle with sin 
And I kept hearing people talk about loving God, and very often I did not feel like I loved God. In fact, I loved my sin. I remember calling my sister, who was in Birmingham, Alabama, and I said to her, she was in college, and I said, Kelly, I'm struggling with this because I don't, I don't know that I love God. I would like to, but if I have to be honest, I don't love God. And she, she very wisely said this to me. She said, well, Andrew, I would encourage you to begin praying this prayer. God, help me to love you. Lord, would you help me to love you? Would you grow in me a love for you? And I began to pray that prayer. I began to pray, Lord, would you help me to love you? Would you help me to desire you? Would you help me to choose you over the things of the world? And, I, and I'll just tell you that praying a prayer like that to God is something that I believe he cannot resist. That just as your child would come to you and ask for something to eat, you don't give him a rock. And he comes to you and he asks for um, some type of a snack because he's hungry. You don't turn around and hand him a snake. That's what Jesus said. If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know to give good things to those who ask him? And so I'm also amazed and I'm beautifully encouraged by the fact that Jesus said that when we ask for things in his name, which means according to his will, that we know the, that we have the things that we ask for. And so I know that it's God's will that we would love him. And when someone begins to pray, Lord, would you help me to love you? He begins to help us to love him. The question is, will we pray that? So that next to the last one there, they are growing in love for him and obedience to him. If you're struggling with that, Pray about it. And you may just be amazed at what God begins to do. How about this last one? They live in ongoing, fill it in, repentance. Why? Because we're sinners and he is a holy God and he's called us to leave the way of the world and he's called us to walk in his way. And so we live in ongoing repentance and fill it in pursuit of God. That's what the righteous do. Now, they're not righteous in themselves. They are righteous only in Christ. And the Old Testament believers were looking to a Messiah who would save them from their sins. And so we have the wicked. Those are the ones who are not interested in God at all, worship other gods. We have the pretenders, those who say they worship the Most High God, but they really don't. And then we have the sinners who have repented of their sin and turned to true faith in God's salvation, and they know that to be their only hope. And their life reflects it. Their life reflects this. So fill this in down there at the bottom. The righteous are those who are truly saved, and they turn away from idols when they discover them. That's what the righteous do. The righteous turn away from idols when they discover them. But the wicked, and both types of the wicked, 
either flaunt or rationalize their idols. Even as I've been preparing this sermon, I've thought there's the thought in some people's minds, well, pastor, I don't know why you're accusing me of having idols. I only worship God. And it's offensive to me that you would suggest that I might be tempted to worship other gods. Watch out. If that voice is in your head, you, you may want to be careful. I've, I've prayed for you in this, to be honest with you. I've, I've prayed for you that God would help you look carefully. There's a reason that one of the great emphasis of the letter that we just read was, children, keep yourselves from idols. We see throughout Jesus' words, we see throughout the rest of Paul's writings and through Peter's writings that Christians can have idols that sneak up in their lives and that shipwreck their faith or blunt their effectiveness. God calls us to deal with him honestly. God calls to deal with him wholly, completely. And there's great, great, great blessing in that. So the wicked either flaunt or that other word there is rationalize their idols, maybe excuse them, maybe don't call them idols. But the wicked also, fill this in, this is not on your outline, this is extra, they go down with their idols. That's the, what the wicked do. They go down with their idols. So let's turn and let's see how God deals with his people of the Old Testament from Isaiah 46. There's been a few different passages in Isaiah that this week have been ministering to me, and this is one of them. About the mid part of the week, I realized I needed to share this with you. God was laying it on my heart to preach through this chapter of Isaiah. Um, just as a side note, for you to have some understanding, you can see the, the screen in front of you. Isaiah chapters 1 through, and Isaiah is, is a glorious, glorious prophetic book of the Old Testament. Isaiah is worth your time. Isaiah, all of God's word is worth your time. But Isaiah, is, Isaiah will help you. It will help you have a grander view of God. Just kind of look right here at me, don't look at the screen. Isaiah is all about who God is. That's what Isaiah is about. I mean, it's dealing with the nation of Israel. It's dealing with the enemies of Israel. But when we really look at the main message of, of Isaiah, it's look at this God. It's really what we've just sung. Look at this God. And look at who he is in his righteousness. Look at who he is in his wrath against sin. But look at who he is in his graciousness. You see, it's in Isaiah 53 that we have, it's like the gospel, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's the gospel according to Isaiah where we see the message of the Messiah. But in Isaiah 1 through 39, we see God's rebellious people crave worldly security. That's what they want is worldly security. But in Isaiah 40 through 55, we see God's defeated people because they had left God and wanted these other gods. 
because we see God's defeated people under worldly domination. So God brings them under the domination of the Assyrians and then the Persia, excuse me, and then the Babylonians, these different kingdoms. And then we see the Persians come in to even take away the Babylonians. The Babylonians being the most powerful empire. And the fact that the Israelites were there in captivity. And there we see, as the Babylonians see the Persians coming, can you imagine what it is? Such a powerful nation, such a powerful empire as the Babylonians. And in their decline, here you are captive in their land and you see an enemy coming. So Israel really was in trouble. Israel had been spanked by God for their unfaithfulness. And we see that Israel is now being shown yet again the redemption of God. But it's in this picture that we begin to see a very important message concerning idols. And I want you to see this in Isaiah 46. Look at Isaiah 46 in verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Now, what in the world is going on? Who is Bel and who is Nebo? We'll just kind of mark it down here. Bel is the Babylonians' most powerful god. He is the chief god of the Babylonians. And Nebo is really his son. And so these two gods were their highest gods. And as the Persians are coming in to destroy Babylon, they are coming in to overtake Babylon, what do we see happen with their, most, with their best and most powerful gods? This best and most powerful gods, God is showing us through Isaiah, are nothing. They're foolish. They're futile. In fact, notice this and fill it in, see the failure of false gods. Now, the Babylonians were powerful, and this was their most powerful god. And you know what this god has to be done? This god has to be carried by beasts. And in fact, this god is being hauled off. One of the best things that you could do when you took over another empire was go get their most prized possessions, including their gods. You go get their gods and haul them off as a war trophy. This picture right now, right here, is a relief carving of a Babylonian god being hauled off by the Persians. So this very statement that is here in this text is on reliefs that have been un uncovered in archaeology. Right now, of course, where most of those things are in the British Museum, the British uh, in their empire days went and hauled off all the great history. So you can go to the National Museum or to the World Museum and see them there in, the, in the, many of those cases. Um, bittersweet, they preserved it but they stole it, whatever, I don't know. Um, but it's there. You can see the gods being hauled off, the idols being hauled off. So let's read it again, see if it makes more sense. Verse one, 
Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. So these gods are being laid down. These gods are being, they're no longer able to even continue. And look at this, they're idols, they're idols. So it's not only the god, but notice this, their idol, that is the carving, that is the image. And you could use, you could interchange the word image there, so their image. And this is juxtaposed against this, the image of God versus the image of Bel and Nebo. The image of Bel and Nebo is a carving. It's not the true nature of God in all of his relational being. So see the failure of this. Persia is conquering Babylon. Their gods are being hauled off as loot, and their gods are no help. So look at verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born. Now, B-O-R-N-E means carried. They're, they're born as a burden. They're carried as a burden on weary beasts. We don't know why the beasts are weary, except that after a war has been going on, your highest priority is not feeding your ox or feeding your donkey. So these beasts are probably tired and hungry, and they probably haven't been fed well because everything has been an upheaval. Instead, the beasts are carrying these gods back. And look what it says in verse 2. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So these are gods that are hauled off into captivity. Not only can they not help you, they have to be carried and hauled off into captivity. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. Look what it says. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. So the kingdom of Judea, the kingdom of Israel, notice this, the remnant, those who still claim God in Israel. Notice who have been born by me. And so here we see the different carrying. Who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we are alike? Now he switches over to the next group. Look at verse 6 and 7. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, who hire a what? A goldsmith. So that's a person who takes the gold and forms it into something. Who hire a goldsmith and make it into a what? A god. Then they fall down and worship. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So in verse 3, 4, and 5, I want you to see this, see the faithfulness of Yahweh God. Y-H-W-H is the personal name of God. We pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah so that we're not talking about the false gods. We're talking about the one true God when we say YHWH, God. See the faithfulness of Yahweh. 
And he, see, he carries you faithfully. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by who? He's carried them who have been born by me from before your birth. He has carried you faithfully and carried you from the womb. You see, he knows you fully. Put out there to the side, Psalm 139, next to the word womb. In Psalm 139, we see that it is God who has knit us together in our mother's womb. And he's known us in the womb before we had any days. This is the God who's carried you. This is the God who knows you fully. Verse 4, this is the God who never changes. Look at verse 4. Even to your old age, I am he. You get old, but I don't, he's saying. And your hair turns gray, but I will carry you. So we see that this is the God who never changes. And then at the end of verse 4, we see these four things. I may, so underline each one. Made, bear, carry, and save. That's what he does. He makes you. He's the creator God. These other gods didn't create you. You had to create them. In fact, that's what we see in verse 6 and 7. So we're going to see that compared against. That's what God's point to us is. You make these gods. And, so, and he says, I will bear you. And this is talking about bearing you and your sin. And he brings his salvation. He comes and carries us. And he saves us. Now, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 this very idea. And I want you to see the text. It's on the screen in front of you. And I know it's a little bit small, but this is so worth your time to look at this. And I want you to see what this God does through the Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Look at verse 2. For he, now this is speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. So all around the Lord Jesus, the tree was dead. And Isaiah is talking about coming out of this dead stump is the Messiah. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. So he didn't come in on a white horse with great armor. He didn't come in all proud and beautiful as men would look. No, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah that God would provide, would come in humility. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Do you see it? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, Isaiah is showing us the difference between the gods that have to be carried versus the God who comes and carries us. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were what? We were healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, and, have, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this is God has laid upon the Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So when in verse 4 it's saying, I have made and I will bear and I will carry and will save, this is part of Isaiah's picture that you are worshiping gods of stone and wood and stubble and gold, but I will send the Messiah to save. And then we say, and fill it in, he is incomparable. There is no way to compare him. Look at verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make we equal and compare me that we are alike? Instead, we see the foolishness of false gods. Fill that in. The foolishness of false gods in verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. Now you can, you can come up with a lot of things. It may not be that you take gold out of your purse. It may be that you transfer money from your bank account in making your god. There's a lot of different ways that we can make our gods. We would want to be aware of that. In this case, this is the picture here of an ancient physical graven image. But, you know, our, our gods can be purchased and made in some fashion. Look what it says. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. So I want you to see this. We see the foolishness, and I believe that God wants us to see this. He's pointed it out. We see the foolishness of false gods. Um, You create them. We see that in verse 6. You carry them. We see that in verse 7. You cry to them in vain. We see that in verse 7. But then we're brought back to look not just at the foolishness of false gods, but once again, the Lord is saying to us, look at the forever God. Fill that in. The next one is the forever God who reigns. I want you to see this in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. Look what it says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. What does it say? Read it out loud. For I am God and there is no other. Okay, that was very weak. Look at the next part of verse 9. It says, remember the former things of old. Read together. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And look what he does in verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. He's saying, I am telling you where this is all going to wind up. I know because it's my plan. He's telling you the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. Put above the word counsel, his will. That's the idea here. It's the counsel of his will. My counsel or my will will stand, and I will accomplish all my what? Purpose. Call in a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel or the man of my will from a far country, right out there to the side of the word east, Cyrus. 
C-Y-R-U-S, because Cyrus was the one, was the Persian that God called from the east to come take over Babylon. So here we are. God knows what he's doing. He moves men. He moves nations. He moves empires. Look what it says in verse 11 at the end. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. You see, the forever God, the camp, notice the command to remember. In fact, in verse 8, would you circle the word remember, and circle the word recall, and circle the word remember? Three times we see that in this statement. You know, human beings have to remember God and have to remember the gospel. Uh, Wednesday night, we talked about that as we were showing the, uh, the American gospel film. How important it is for when Christians get together that we, without hesitation, recount what is the good news. The good news is that Christ has died for our sins. He has risen again, and the all who would believe in him can be saved from their sin. And we, we should never get over that. We should be amazed by that every day of our lives, that God would have mercy, a holy God that would be justified to banish us forever, would come and he himself would come and pay for our sins. This is amazing. It's amazing that he lets me moment by moment back into his presence through the blood of Christ. And we need to remember that. That's the reason that we have the Lord's Supper right here. We have the Lord's Supper. Every month we, we set aside a significant moment, time, in our worship time to remember what Jesus did for us. And when we remember that he died for us, you see, that helps us to choose him over our sin. This is, this is remembering. Israel had to be told to remember. The church has to be told to remember. You have to be told to remember. That's why we need to be in his word. We need to be learning what all he has done and remembering the gospel, remembering the character of God. So this forever God tells us that we must remember. If we don't purposely remember, we will come to forget. And when we forget, that's when late night you click on the wrong stuff. That's when you're on the wrong side of town and you go do the wrong thing. That's when this little demon starts whispering to you about your husband or about your wife. And then you walk in the door and there's trouble. And you, and you, you forget the truth of the gospel in your marriage and in your life. This is when over and over again we are tempted to look away from what God has called us to do and to be and to worship in him, to worship in the way that we love our wife, to worship in the way that we love our husband. Instead, we begin to worship other things. You see, the great I am is incomparable. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, we see the great I am saying, he says, this is I am who I am. Moses would say that. And Jesus, in John 8, 24, would say, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. Over and over again, we see Jesus pointing out I am. Look at verse 9, what it says there. For I am God. Circle I am. He says, I am the great I am. 
This is the one true God. There is no other God. There is none like me, he says. And this is the God who has a comprehensive plan. We see that in verse 10. It is a sovereign plan. It is his own will. No one's pushing God around or telling him what to do. And in the process of all of that, his will is never thwarted. Right below his will is who is never thwarted. Um, I, I just want to encourage you to go look up Job 42, verse 2, and Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 30, and they're on the screen in front of you. God's will is never thwarted. The, the will that doesn't exist of Bel and Nebo, except in the minds of its creators, is always thwarted. There is no will that they possess and that they exact, but God, the true God, has a perfect will, and it's always realized. Finally, I want us to see in this, as is so often the case, we see the hope that Isaiah presents, the hope that is in God. See God's salvation for sinners. See God's salvation for sinners. Look at verse 12 and 13. Look look what it says. Listen to me, you what? What does it say there? You stubborn of heart. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. You see, as we, as we see this, we, we see two things going on here. We see, number one, God dealing with Israel through Babylon and Persia and what is going to happen in the fifth century that we see that, that Israel is going to be restored. But we also see in the whole book of Isaiah that this is talking about not just the salvation of Israel in their day and in their experience, but we see all of this is pointing to God's grand plan of salvation for all time. And that's what we can gain out of the book of Isaiah, of, of Isaiah seeing in principle and in action God's saving work of his people. And so look at this with me. Are you stubborn? Are you stubborn about your idols? Then listen. Listen to what God is saying to you this morning, on this Sunday morning. God's salvation is near to you. Run to it. He is quick to save. He will save you from your false gods. He will save you from your idols if you will but turn to him and rest in him and trust in him. Can we go back to the other page? Let you see again this picture of what he's doing. So we said the righteous, those who are truly saved, turn away from idols. The wicked, both types that we talked about, either flaunt or rationalize their idols. But now notice the next statement here. When the righteous find idols, they destroy them. That's what the righteous do. In Exodus 32, we see that Moses was up on the mountain with the Lord. 
And Israel was down off the mountain. And when they started to say, where did Moses go? Did he leave us? Is he dead? And so this test that God allows them to have, testing their faith, what do they do? They say, well, let's make a God. And they make a God. They bring, oh, listen to this. Here's the, there's so much irony in, in, in um, Exodus 32. You really need to read the whole thing this afternoon and just see it. But think about this. The irony of after the death angel had passed over Egypt, what did the Egyptians do? They bring all their gold to the Israelites and they give it to them and they say, go. And so they leave with a mother load of gold. They're like, we don't want any more plagues. We want you out of here. Get out of here and go. And so not only does God deliver them, but God blesses them with these precious gifts. And he's going to later use them for other purposes. But here they're wearing the gold that was given to them by God through the Egyptians. And what do they take those gold, all of that gold? It could be a symbol of God's over-the-top generosity in delivering them. Uh, preserving their firstborn from the death angel and delivering them from bondage and evil and even putting the cherry on top of all this gold. But instead, they take the cherry on top of all the gold and they put it together in a fire and they have a, a goldsmith fashion a great big calf. What a slap in the face to a generous God. Do you see how prone we can be to become impatient, and run after answers in other gods. And it's lunacy. It's, it's utter insanity. But Moses comes down from the mountain and sees this. And in his great rage, he dashes the tablets on the ground, which is perhaps a symbol that the covenant has been broken. They have broken their covenant with God that he would be their God and they would be his people. And Moses begins to investigate, and his right-hand man, Aaron, lies about what happened. He said, we took all the gold, threw it in the fire, and look what came out of the fire. <laughs> Sin will make you stupid. It'll make you stupid so over and over and over again. One lie needs, leads to the next. And so here, here we see Moses come and he grinds, he burns the calf, grinds it, it says, into powder and throws it across their drinking supply of water and makes the people drink it. Now, there's, there's a lot of question about what is all the symbolism of that and causing that to happen and them drinking the ash in the, if it had wood structure within it or whether it was solid gold. The idea is it's pulverized. Eventually, the idea is that they drink it. And, and, and we see something very similar, another response to a destruction of an idol. Look at 2 Kings in, ver, in chapter 23. Josiah tears down the Asherah pole, which was a false god. It was an idol. He pulverizes it and he spreads it over the graves. Now in this culture, what do the graves represent? That which is unclean. And so the picture is this, is that 
these false gods are put into a, a situation where the remnants of them is completely and totally unclean, condemned. Think about what happens when Moses makes them drink this idol that has been ground up. Well, it go, what goes in must what? Come out. And is that considered unclean? Absolutely. Ensuring that this gold would never be used again for anything as it is completely declared unclean. It becomes completely defiled. And so God, in his great plan through Moses, defiles and destroys these gods. That's what God does. He uses this moment to show the destruction and the uncleanliness of false gods. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Look what it says there. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations, where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. So wherever they serve their gods, you're going to destroy those places. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Look what it says. Read it out loud together. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So when they go into Canaan and there's false gods there, they're not to go in, take the land, and then worship those false gods. They're to go in, take the land, and destroy those false gods. Look at Deuteronomy 7 verse 5. But thus shall you deal with them. So this is dealing with the idols. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Do you think that this is God saying to them to reject those false gods? I think so. Look at Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, I will destroy the idols. And put an end to the images in Memphis. There, that's not Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> Elvis is from Memphis. I know. I used to live there. Pretty cool. But I mean, that, that, so maybe it's you know Memphis, Tennessee. But no, I mean, that, wherever there's a god, and here we see the whole picture of Egypt and God delivering them in all of this. I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt. So I will put fear in the land of Egypt. God destroys the idols. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Read it out loud together. And the idols shall utterly pass away. Friends, we need to deal decisively with our idols. There was no question about how God felt about these idols. 
And there was no question about what anybody thought about them when they saw what was happening. And God, for us this morning, has mocked the false gods before us. He's shown them they require beasts of burden to be carried. They're not going to do anything for you. In fact, they're going to be hauled off into captivity along with you. These things are not worth your time and your worship. These things are not worth your devotion. You see, these these idols, listen, these idols will become a burden to you. How many times have I wanted something so bad and I finally got it and it turned out to be a burden? Some of you have thought, I gotta have this, gotta have this. I really want this, it's gonna make me happy. We're gonna do it for the family. It's gonna be for the family. And, da, 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 da. and you go out there and you figure out, you call up the bank, hey, can you load that second mortgage, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is, and you get this whole thing together, and then you get into it and you're like, oh goodness, what did we do? I can't believe that we spent I can't believe that and you know, before I mean, I, I just know so many people that have made big decisions that wound up being a burden. And even if it didn't become a burden in that way, maybe later they would come to see that sometimes when we greatly sacrifice, when we greatly pour our heart into these other things that are earthly and worldly, that they can become a burden that does not deliver. Now that, you know, I will say that there are some things that you may invest in and you do so with the right heart, with the right attitude, keeping God worshiping and all who, that you're worshiping him and all that he is and your heart is right before those things. And then there's some things in this life that can be a true blessing to you. But some of those things, when our priorities are out of whack and our worship is out of whack, when we're not having God at the center of our heart, where he is getting the first place of our worship, then those things that could have been good things for us become idols to us and become a burden that are nothing but a burden. I I have seen that happen many, many times in people's lives. They sacrifice and scrape and and go after this thing, and when God is not first in their life, it becomes first in their life, and then it's nothing but a disaster. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's a, it's a cause. Someone devotes their life to this cause. It may even seem like a good moral cause, but if God is not first, the cause winds up living, leaving them exhausted and disillusioned. That can happen with politics. That can happen with, with um, identity politics. That can happen with various causes. It could even social work sometimes when, when we're doing that because we feel better about it and we, we put a big priority on it, but God is not still God to us. Instead, this other thing becomes God. It winds up being draining and disappointing and disillusioning. Isaiah is saying to us, allow God to be God. You see, you and idols, what will you do with them? Number one, I hope that you will recognize them for what they are. 
I hope you will recognize them for what they are, that you won't make excuses about them, you won't, you won't rationalize them. You will recognize the danger that they are what they are. Number two, I pray that you will begin by removing them. Remove them. Some of you may need to go home and remove some things. You may need to remove something from your house. You may need to pour it out. You may need to dash it in pieces. You may need to delete it off your computer. You may need to erase it. I don't, I don't know. If there's things that demand your time and get in the way of your devotion to God, you need to remove them. You need to destroy them. But let's don't forget this. You need to repent of them. Because that's what God's people do. They see that they're sinners in need of repentance. And they take their stubborn heart and they repent. Do you know that in Romans it says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? So when you repent of the idols in your life, recognize this. That's the kindness of God that's leading you to repent. It's part of his mercy and his grace. And after we recognize them, remove, destroy, and repent of them, number three, we need to remember and serve the one true God who saves you. Don't serve the other gods. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. So serve him. You know, some people try to get something out of their life without putting something in their life, and other things come in and destroy You know, if you will allow God to fill the void that your idol leaves vacant, this is the end goal, that he displaces these things. So may we be a people who are constantly on the watch for idols, we can simply say, Lord, is this getting in the way of me and you? Help me. Help me to love you more than I love this. That is a prayer that God will answer. Let's pray together.